4: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and today we hear from Jeff Katz. He's a radio host in Richmond, Virginia, and he's also a columnist for the Boston Herald. And here he shares his deeply personal story about his teenage daughter, Julia, who has what doctors call global developmental delays and disabilities. And all of that means is that she functions physically and mentally at the level of a toddler. Here's Jeff reading a note that he wrote to his daughter.
5: Dear Julia, I'm writing you this note on March the 7th, 2018. Today is the day that you turn 15 years old. It's an interesting day for me and for mom, but it's another day for you. You're not like other kids, my sweet. You've never made a big deal of your birthday. You've never asked us for any type of a special gift. Not for your birthday, not for Hanukkah, not for Christmas. You've treated each and every day in the same way. Mom will wake you up and you'll have a smile on your face when you see her. She'll play some of your music and you'll smile even more. You may laugh, or giggle, or squeal, but there will not be any words. You won't complain about having to go to school. You won't be happy to hear that it is a snow day. You won't celebrate the fact that today is 15 years since you were born. Most 15-year-old girls would be thinking about clothing, college, or a car. By 15, many dads have already had to warn their daughters about some dopey boy. But today, You'll watch your favorite episode of Jack's Big Music Show, enjoy your cereal, and be on the lookout for cookies wherever you can find them. Mom and I know that you will be with us as long as we're alive. But we worry about what happens after we're gone. You have two wonderful brothers, and I pray every day that we have raised them well enough to know that they will need to look after you someday. You may be our middle child, but you'll always be the baby. Even as you get older, according to the calendar, as mom told me yesterday, you are timeless. You'll always be my pipsqueak, despite the fact that the years are flying by. No, we're not exploring potential careers or making plans for your wedding. We're still hoping that we'll be able to help you move from diapers to the potty someday. You live today the same way you did when you were about 18 months old. You don't speak and you only recognize a few words, but oh, the words that you know. Kisses and cookies. No matter how filled up you are, there's always room for a cookie or two. You don't understand when I ask you how your day was, but you become laser beam focused when you hear the crinkle of the wrapper on a package of something sweet. No matter how sweet that candy, it's still eclipsed by your genuinely sweet smile. So many people live their lives asking for things, demanding things, accumulating things. Most people never take the time to stop and savor a piece of cake or breathe deeply to appreciate a gentle breeze like you do. I hear people in this world use horrible, insulting language to describe kids like you, and I want to shake them and yell at them. Some mock disabled kiddos like you, and I feel like crying. You don't understand their words, but I do. Sometimes I really wish I did not. We never thought you would crawl, let alone walk, but you showed us. Your situation and challenges and disabilities have caused me to question my belief in God on some days and have served to strengthen it on others. You don't speak, but somehow you are able to brighten my days in ways that I never imagined. Without a single solitary word, you've made me a better man and touched countless people. Hearing you cry ties my stomach into knots, but your giggle is truly the happiest sound that I have ever heard. I know you'll never read this, nor would you understand this if I were to read it to you. So let me just say, kisses and cookies, Jules Bagules. I tell you today what I have told you on every March the 7th since 2003. Daddy loves you more than you will ever know.
4: And thank you for that reading, Jeff. You've made me a better man, he wrote. Your giggle is the happiest sound I've ever heard. On Julia's unexpectedly learning how to walk, Jeff told the Boston Herald that, quote, it was one of the proudest days of my life, one of the happiest days of my life. But I also have to tell you, it's a terrifying situation because Julia is like a toddler. She has no real understanding of, oh, the stove is hot, or, I could fall here or trip you there. We're thrilled that she's trying to explore on her own a little bit, and we're terrified at the same time. And this is true for all of us parents, but even more so for Jeff and his bride. Jeff has said that it's tough to realize that he'll never get to embarrass Julia by dancing with her at her wedding. But, quote, she's the best thing that's ever happened to me. End quote. And last but not least, he said these words quote, She's never spoken a word. She's never said a word to anybody. But she's touched more people in her 15 years on this earth than I ever have. Her joy is pure. To me, she's like the face of God. She's the essence of good, and she shares her joy with everybody. Jeff Katz's story, his daughter Julius, here on Our American Stories. Visit BetterHelp.com slash OAS today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash OAS. BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash OAS.
6: I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico,
4: and we continue with our american stories and we're about to tell you one of the quintessential american stories about one of the most esteemed of our american vets yet chances are many of you have never heard this man's name before and now let's go to the story of audie murphy he had over 250 kills in world war
7: ii he is america's most decorated soldier having received every award citation and decoration the Army could give, including the Medal of Honor. All before he turned 20, though he looked 14. He became a movie star and wrote 17 songs, which were recorded by guys like Dean Martin, Eddie Fisher, Porter Wagner, Jimmy Dean, and Charlie Pride. He wrote a best-selling autobiography and starred in its film adaptation, which became Universal Studios' highest-grossing film for 20 years, until Jaws broke its record in 1975. His grave is the second most visited at Arlington National Cemetery. JFK's is the first. Yet this five-foot-five, 110-pound baby-faced hero is practically unknown in America today, which is astonishing considering just 50-plus years ago he received more fan mail than any other celebrity in Hollywood. To find out more about this American hero, let's take a listen to the man who wrote the book. Dr. David A. Smith is an American history professor at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. He wrote, The Price of Valor, The Life of Audie Murphy, America's most decorated hero of World War II. I asked him, who is Audie Murphy?
8: It's interesting because nobody else in American history combines these two sort of archetypal roles as he does. I mean, he's the most decorated soldier from the biggest war we've ever fought. And at the same time, or right after, he was a movie star at a time in Hollywood when movie stars had a cultural cachet that they would never have again. And one of the things that I find so fascinating about him is that he brings these roles together. He brings together the role of genuine hero and celebrity, and they don't match. They don't match at all. I mean, a hero is a very particular thing. A a hero is an important cultural element within any culture. A hero is how we learn what virtue is. I mean, a hero is someone who for a small amount of time embodies a particular virtue. I mean, a virtue is an idea, and we have trouble, you know, relating to it until we see it in the flesh. And that's what a hero is. And that's what he was first. Selflessness, determination, duty, patriotism, that whole bit. And then, gosh, then he becomes a movie star. And he hated being a movie star. He didn't like movie stars. His first wife, to whom he was married for just a year, wanted to be a movie star, badly. And that's what she was in Hollywood for. And that's what drove them apart, because he hated Hollywood. He hated the phoniness of celebrity. And he, he disparaged his own talents. He refused to hang around other actors, mostly. When he was on the set, he would hang around with the horse wranglers and the stuntmen and the props guys. And it's fascinating to me that here, in this one person, you have extreme heroism and extreme celebrity and it's trying to mix. And his story is a story of how we've confused them today.
7: In mythology and legend, a hero is a man of divine ancestry who is endowed with great courage and strength celebrated for his brave exploits and favored by the gods. In reality, Audie was all these things. But as to the part of ancestry, it was far from divine. Here's Joanne Mattern, author of Audie Murphy, Fact or Fiction.
9: Audie Murphy was born on June 20th, 1925. And he was born in a little town called Kingston, Texas. His parents were sharecroppers, And um, that means that they uh, picked cotton in fields, but they didn't own the fields. The fields were owned by someone else. And in return for working, all they got was uh, a little shack to live in and a tiny little bit of the money that they earned. Everything else went to the owner of the field. The house they lived in was no more than a little shack. It had no running water, no bathrooms, no electricity. They had 12 children altogether and as soon as the kids were old enough, maybe four or five years old, they went to work in the cotton fields with their parents. Audie later said that he just worked and that it was a full-time job just existing. In fact, when Audie was born, his mother, Josie, couldn't take time off to take care of the baby, so she put him in a baby swing and took him out in the cotton fields with her. Audie's father, his name was Emmett, and Emmett, he was pretty lazy more interested in in gambling and having a good time and the only time they got any meat to eat was if Audie and his brothers went out and hunted them. A neighbor once lent Audie his gun and it had eight bullets in it and Audie went hunting. came back with four rabbits and four bullets still left in the gun. That's how good a shot he was.
7: Here's Audie's sister, Nadine Murphy,
9: he got a
8: little old 22, I don't know where, but he was really good at it. He could kill a rabbit on the run. Well, that's how we, that's how we lived, Dad. That's how we ate. He would go out and kill squirrels and rabbits. And uh, I guess we could say we're alive today because of him. He was my hero even then, before he ever did anything great. He was great to me then.
7: Here again is Dr. Smith.
8: One of the things that defines him throughout his entire life is his sense of duty to the people who are depending on him. He felt his duty toward his younger siblings in a profound way.
7: Times were beginning to unfold that would shape his destiny forever. The country was in the throes of the Great Depression, and at one point things got so bad for the Murphys that they moved into a railroad boxcar.
9: When he was 13 years old, his father left the family and he never came back. So now Audie had to step up and be the man of the house. And in order to do that, he had to quit school. So he never got farther than the fifth grade. But the person that was hardest hit in the family was his mother, Josie. And in 1941, she died of pneumonia. And he said her early death was not unusual in the story of of a sharecropper family, uh, particularly when the sharecropper himself runs off, leaving his wife to take care of their children. Anyway, so Audie was only 16. He had younger sisters and a brother to take care of, and he couldn't take care of them because he had to work. So they were sent to an orphanage. And then everything changed.
7: Everything changed. Here's Murphy historian Michael West.
2: Well, the time that the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, December 7th, I believe Audie Murphy and Monroe Hackney were actually on a double date at a movie theater. And after they returned from the movie theater, they learned, of course, of of the bombing. Well, immediately, all the young men, or a number of the young men, chose to to join. Well, that included Audie Murphy as well. Well, at that time, Audie was only about 17 and a half years old. Plus, he was plagued with that baby face. And immediately, uh, the recruiters recognized that he's too young. Uh, He tries the Marines. They virtually laugh him out. He uh, has visions of joining the paratroopers. Well, that, that never works out. So finally, he is uh, just simply run off, in essence, and he, he doesn't join.
9: So Audie's older sister, Corinne, got him a false birth certificate that showed he was a year older than he was. So after he turned 18, as it said on his birth certificate, he was actually only 17, he went back and joined the Army, and he was accepted into the infantry.
4: And what a story so far. I'd been a fan of the movie, but just didn't know. Just didn't know the circumstances, my goodness. Losing a father and a mother, and then having kids orphaned, living out of a boxcar. And when we come back, more on the life of Audie Murphy. This is Our American Stories.
5: Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If
1: you dare. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
3: A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh?
1: Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino.
4: And we return to Our American stories. We're telling the story of Audie Murphy. And if you've never seen the movie, To Hell and Back, it comes on TV all the time. This time, don't skip it. It's terrific, and it should be a remake. His life story should be a remake too, so everybody today knows who Audie Murphy is. Let's return to Greg Hengler and Audie's story. The Army infantry was the most
7: accepting of recruits who appeared to possess the least amount of skills needed for combat. Audie Murphy attended two boot camps before seeing any action, and in both camps, the Army tried to protect the little recruit they nicknamed Baby. They tried to put him in their post office and then their kitchen, but Audie would have none of
8: it. Nobody pushed him around. I mean, he, he was impressively tough from the very beginning. And he would literally push himself until he collapsed. The guys he met there at boot camp remembered that he was clearly in his element, even though he was small of stature, even though he was baby-faced. And uh, his superiors wanted to find some place for him that he might be a better fit, because honestly, he wasn't a good fit in the infantry until you got to know him. And he said, absolutely not. I want to be in the infantry. I want to march with this pack that's as big as I am, and I'm going to do it. And his superiors reluctantly let him stay, but they made a good decision.
7: Audie was assigned to Company B, the 15th Infantry Regiment, 3rd Division. No one could know that this poor tenant farmer's son would one day help to cause the demise of Hitler's promised thousand-year Reich by performing such wondrous deeds in battle that they seemed almost mythological. Here's one of them.
8: The first time he goes into combat with the 3rd Division is in the invasion of Sicily. And Laddie Tipton is a soldier in his company, and, and they are extremely close. Laddie has an estranged wife and a daughter and Audie Murphy I don't know if I want to say envies him for this but Audie Murphy realizes how special this is to have a wife and a daughter because he you know he doesn't have much in the way of family and he talks to Laddie about his daughter all the time and says you know you're going to get back to see her you're going to get back to her you're going to be a great father and then you know they come ashore in France together in August of 44 and they're fighting their way up this hill. He and Laddie, they're working their way up this hill in the face of a whole repeated series of German machine gun emplacements. And they, they get one German foxhole to surrender to them. And they, they wave a white flag. I did it. And Laddie says, okay, they're surrendering. We can go get them. Stay down. And, and Audie says, no, 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 stay down. There are other people up there. And a German sniper from someplace else up on the hill hits Laddie in the head with a bullet. And he collapses right down into Audie's lap. And he sort of, I don't want to say goes nuts, but he grabs a gun and just charges up this hill in and out of draws and in and out of foxholes. And then he gets a German gun and goes after other foxholes and he clears out that entire hillside. And everybody says, oh, that was the most courageous thing I had ever seen. And he says, that wasn't courage. That was just me being mad. And, you know, he goes back to Laddie to where his body is and, and he, he cries over him. It's just a, a heartbreaking scene, but it wins him his Distinguished Service Cross.
7: The Distinguished Service Cross is the second highest military award after the Medal of Honor. And that was one of the only two moments in Audie's life he openly admitted to crying. The other being the death of his mother. Here's Dr. Smith with the heroic act that would earn Audie Murphy the Congressional Medal of Honor and the respect and love of the United States of America.
8: The story of his Medal of Honor is probably the most impressive story that you may hear from World War II. He's in France. He's coming up to the German border. It's wintertime, there's snow on the ground. It's icy cold. And he's, he's leading... A couple of tanks and a platoon of soldiers southward toward a town. And from the town toward him comes a company of German soldiers, maybe more, maybe of Italian, and, and two tanks. What he has with him are a couple of things that look like tanks, but they're called tank destroyers. They're faster and they're lighter than tanks, and they're meant to be able to shoot tanks and then get away. But both of those things, both of those tank destroyers are knocked out of commission really early on in this firefight. And he realizes that without those tank destroyers to give his men cover, it's going to be incredibly hard for them to continue their push south across this snowy field. And he orders his men to start to fall back toward the forest. And he stays out at the front point of the position because he has a radio, and he's calling in artillery from the rear. And he's telling, you know, where to drop the artillery rounds, and he was always very good at this, which serves him very well. And he's starting to pull back, and both of the tanks that are with him have been knocked out. And he realizes that if the Germans overrun this position that he has, they will go straight into the woods and straight to the the headquarters of his company and overrun their entire position. And he, he realizes he's got to stay there as long as he can. And as he's, he's yelling into the radio, yelling coordinates, and he's sort of backing up, and then he realizes that over to his right, the the tank that's been knocked out of commission and that the men inside are dead, he... He's, he realizes that the 50 caliber gun up on the top of it, up on the turret, is still operable. And he climbs up on this tank, and he, he trains the gun on the Germans coming across the field toward him. And the the tank is burning, so it's producing a lot of smoke, and it masks his position. It gives him cover. It's like a smoke screen. And he, he swivels back and forth with this 50 caliber, shooting at these German soldiers that are coming across the field and getting really close. Later he said, I remember being up on there, and the thought I had was, this is the first time my feet have been warm for three months. <laughs> and across the radio comes the question, how close are they to your position? And his response is, if you'll just hold the line, I'll let you talk to one of them. And, and, he's, and it gets to the point where the shells coming in and hitting are, are jarring him and kicking him around. They're hitting so close to him. And finally, finally they, they begin to pull back, and, and he realizes that the Germans are withdrawing. And he climbs down off this tank, and he's shaking And he walks over to a tree, and he leans against a tree, and he just slumps down to the ground. And right about that time, the tank he was standing on explodes. And it blows that turret, you know, way up into the air and off into the woods. And the people who watched this, the people who filled out the reports for him, the eyewitness reports for him to get the Medal of Honor, said they had never even seen anything like it. They couldn't believe it, and they saw it.
4: They couldn't believe it, and they saw it. And when we come back... More of this remarkable story, Audie Murphy's story, here on Our American Stories, the final segment of this remarkable life, this remarkable man. At Our American Stories, we bring you inspiring stories of history, sports, business, faith, and love, stories from a great and beautiful country that need to be told. But we can't do it without you. Our stories are free to listen to, but they're not free to make. If you love our stories in America like we do, please go to ouramericanstories.com and click the donate button. Give a little, give a lot. Help us keep the great American stories coming. That's ouramericanstories.com.
3: Visit livenation.com slash concertweek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club.
4: And we continue with Our American Stories. Let's return to Greg Hengler and the final part of the Audie Murphy story.
7: If you happen to end up in a foxhole with Audie Murphy, he was going to talk to you and what you might hear is not what you'd think
8: a little a guy who's just scared to death all the time finds himself sitting in a foxhole with Audie Murphy and Audie says to him you know don't be afraid to be scared there's going to be times when you're scared to death and then Audie tells this kid i'm always scared when i'm at the front and it's it's The irony is that everybody else in the division says, when we hear that Audie Murphy's in the front, the rest of us in the rear can go to sleep and sleep well. But Audie tells this kid, you know, there'll be times when you want to cry and it's okay to cry. I mean, Audie transforms very much over the course of his time as a soldier from someone who has nothing but disdain, you know, sort of like Patton style for people who can't take it and who break under combat to somebody who understands intimately how, how harrowing it is and what it can do to somebody.
7: With attendance in the thousands, Murphy received his Medal of Honor in the Austrian city of Salzburg.
8: Now this is in uh, May of 45. It's at an airfield just outside of Salzburg. He, he has this survivor's guilt already. Yes, he's, he's a brave soldier, but the guys who were killed And he's always gonna say this, those are the ones who deserve the medals. Those are the ones who deserve the honor. When you see the photographs of him standing there, you think this guy's just a kid. Well, he he sort of is.
7: Thanks to Life Magazine putting Audie on its cover, he returned an American hero. I asked Dr. Smith to put into context what it meant to grace the cover of Life Magazine in the 1940s.
8: There's nothing today And I think about this sometimes. I I can't think of anything today that is analogous to Life Magazine in 1945. There's nothing that has the cultural centrality. There's nothing that in one magazine, in one photograph, can make you a national icon. But Life Magazine was like that. And, And Life Magazine had heard about him had heard about him coming back to Texas, had heard about the ceremonies that he had been through. And they sent a photographer to do a photo essay in in the little town of of, of Farmersville in Greenville where he lived. But if you, if you get that Life magazine, you open it up, you look through it and you see, oh man, you see a photograph of him getting his hair cut with a bunch of farmers looking in at him. That, but it's this cover and it shows him fresh-faced, looking like a high school football quarterback in a military uniform. He's evidently young. He looks, and I think this is important, he looks completely unscarred by his past. He looks as fresh-faced as if he was fresh out of high school. And, of course, he's not. And you, you can't tell at all by looking that this guy killed you know 250 soldiers this guy was shot repeatedly this guy was 50% disabled you know, according to the US army and and this guy's carrying around already carrying around some some terrible emotional baggage that's keeping him from sleeping at night but there he is on the cover of life magazine looking like a norman rockwell figure come to life
7: one of Hollywood's biggest movie stars saw Audie Murphy on the cover of Life magazine and picked up the phone. Here again is Joanne Mattern.
9: There was a famous actor named Jimmy Cagney, and Jimmy Cagney saw uh, all the press about Audie, saw his picture, and said, hey, this guy should be in the movies. So he invited Audie to come to Hollywood and try to be a movie star. And um, Audie even lived with him for a while. But his acting career didn't really take off So he ended up sleeping in in a gym that a friend of his owned, and kind of bounced around a little bit. But then in 1949, he wrote a book called To Hell and Back, and that was all about his experiences in the war. And the book was a huge bestseller, and kind of got Hollywood's attention again. So he um, ended up making a few movies, mostly westerns. And he didn't care for westerns. He felt like every movie had the same plot as the last movie he did, and one of my favorite quotes, he said it, that in Westerns, the faces are the same and so is the dialogue. Only the horses are changed. And uh, what happened, though, after he was doing these movies and kind of, you know, plugging along, um, To Hell and Back was a huge bestseller, and Universal Studios decided to make it into a movie, and they wanted Audie to star as himself. And Audie said no. He said, I don't want the public to think I'm trying to be famous by, by saying, look at me, I'm a war hero. But eventually he changed his mind because he felt that he could show how brave all the soldiers were who who had fought and who had died and um, kind of do a tribute to them through the movie. And he also wanted to make sure the movie was as realistic as possible. And starring in it meant that he could have some say in, you know, how the battles were staged and the uniforms and how how the actors behaved as the soldiers. So he ended up doing it. The movie came out in 1955. It was a huge hit. It was actually Universal Studios' highest-earning movie until 1975 when the movie Jaws came out. And it was the high point of Audie's acting career. He went on and did some movies and some television after that, but that was really the high point. But while this, all this was going on off screen, it was very difficult for him. Nowadays, we would understand that he had post-traumatic stress disorder from his time in battle, but during the 50s and the 60s, that term didn't exist yet and people weren't really aware of it so Audie actually in the sixties he started to speak out about how he felt that um, you know he had trouble sleeping every time he heard a loud noise he would jump he slept with a gun under his pillow when he went out in public when he was driving down the road he was constantly looking for danger you know looking for something to jump out at him and he said during the sixties when he was speaking out he said to be trained to kill and then come back into civilian life and be alone in a crowd, it takes an awful long time to get over it. But he, he, he tried to help others through his experiences.
7: Here's Audie's friend, film director Bud Bedeker, on Audie's struggle with PTSD.
8: He called me one day and he said, uh, I'm sitting here with my 45, the picture's in good shape, don't worry about a thing, I'm going to blow my brains out. And I had two seconds, and I said, that's really great. He said, what do you mean? I said, why don't you do that? He said, what do you mean? I said, do it for every kid in the country who thinks you're the greatest fellow who ever lived. That'll make everybody in the United States go ahead and pull the trigger. He said, you son of a... And he hung up.
7: Audie's life clearly defined who he was and what he stood for. His death was no different
9: In 1971, Audie Murphy was flying on a small plane, and the plane crashed, and he was killed. He was 45 years old. And because he was a war veteran and a hero, he was buried at Arlington National Cemetery with full military honors. And generally, if you are a Medal of Honor winner, your gravestone at Arlington, the lettering is done in gold trim. It's very sparkly, it's very eye-catching. And Audie didn't want that. He just has a plain gravestone, and it just lists his name. It's very plain, very brief. Doesn't really give any indication of what a hero he was. And he's the second most visited grave at Arlington Cemetery, the first one being President John Kennedy's grave. is the most popular, and Audie's number two.
7: American news anchor Tom Brokaw wrote the introduction for Murphy's autobiography to Helen back. Here's how he concludes. I was first aware of Murphy as a war hero. He was on the cover of Life magazine when I was a youngster. Not long before his untimely death in an airplane accident, I was working in California when Audie Murphy came back into the news. A woman friend of his had sent her dog to a trainer and she wasn't happy with the results. As I recall, she asked Audie to intervene. He visited the dog trainer who then complained to the police that Murphy had shot at him. The local police brought Murphy in for questioning, and when Murphy was released without charges, a large number of reporters were outside the police station. Murphy agreed to take a few questions. One of the reporters asked, Audie, did you shoot at the guy? Audie Murphy, the most decorated combat veteran of World War II, stared at his interrogator for a moment and then said, in that familiar Texas voice, if I had, you think I would have missed? I love that moment and all that Audie Murphy stood for as a citizen,
4: a soldier, and a hero. Tom Brokaw. And great job on that, Greg. And again, 250 confirmed kills. One man, humble beginnings. Humble in birth and humble in death. This is Lee Habee Bonnie Murphy's story, here on Our American Stories.